This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Jewish Currents, the historic magazine of the Jewish left. Jewish Currents is an award-winning magazine of politics, culture, and ideas, published quarterly in print and daily online. In addition to Jewish Currents magazine, website, and podcast On the Nose, Dig listeners might be especially interested in Jewish Currents weekly newsletter on Israel-Palestine, which covers events unfolding on the ground and their political ramifications around the world, delivering up-to-the-minute reporting and trenchant analysis straight to your inbox. In recent entries, Alex Kane examines the anti-boycott laws that are spreading across the U.S. to target the BDS movement. Joshua Leifer looks at Biden's failure to exert pressure on Netanyahu, and Elishiva Goldberg illuminates the disturbing implications of a destructive Israeli settler attack on the Palestinian village of Huara. Subscriptions to Jewish Current's beautifully designed print magazine start at $48 per year. You can sign up for the newsletter for free on the Jewish Currents website by going to jewishcurrents.org slash newsletter. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. All is not well in the settler colony, which, of course, it never was. In Israel, the internal contradictions of the Zionist project have been building up since the 1948 Nakba and before. On one level, Zionism is a cohesive settler colonial project that shores up Israel as an ethnocracy, ruling over Palestinians as second-class citizens within the Green Line, while managing Palestinians through an apartheid system in the West Bank and with blockades and brutal military campaigns in Gaza. But the Zionist project is at war not only against Palestinians, but also with itself, polarized along class and ethnic lines and pitting the religious against secular, all coming to a head over the leadership of Benjamin Netanyahu and his right-wing far-right coalition government's plan to curb the independence of the judiciary. Today, I'm interviewing two close and smart observers of Israeli politics, Ido Conrad and Joshua Leifer. We discuss the current conflict in Israeli politics and then historicize it in terms of how the social democracy-inflected labor Zionist settler colonial project that founded Israel gave way to the right-wing, far-right government that we see today, and what to make of the Zionist, centrist, liberal, and secular protest movement against that government, and where the Palestinian struggle for national liberation inside Israel and in the territories from the river to the sea fits in to that intra-Zionist conflict. Before we get rolling, I hope you listened to last week's episode on Cairo, the first installment of The Dig Presents, our new audio documentary series. The entire season is going to be really excellent, and I'd like to make a special request to you right now to spread the word on social media and to your friends. We want Dig listeners to listen to these episodes, but we also think they'll appeal to non-regular Dig listeners, people who are maybe not into or maybe not yet ready for you know, three hours plus of Gramsci exegesis and whatnot. So please do spread the word. We're excited about this project and really do want it to reach a broader audience. I'd also like you to take a moment to contribute, to support The Dig, and to make sure that I can order a second season of The Dig Presents, because these audio documentaries are way more expensive than a regular Dig episode because they require a ton of hard work from many talented people. Ultimately, 
we need to raise enough money to not lose money on The Dig Presents. But that doesn't mean we have to raise all that money this year. We just need to make some progress towards that goal. So in order for me to order a second season of The Dig Presents for 2024, what we need is $1,000 in additional monthly revenue. If you have been meaning to support this podcast and haven't contributed yet, please do so now at patreon.com slash the dig. There's a link in the show notes. Click it now and give. We also have books, totes, mugs to send you if you contribute $10 a month or more. And a contribution of any amount at all gets you our excellent weekly newsletter by email. If you haven't checked it out, you really should. It's great. Contribute now to support The Dig, and in particular to keep The Dig Presents running for a second season in 2024. And please do spread the word. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash The Dig. Okay, here's Ido Conrad and Joshua Leifer. Ido Conrad is the editor-in-chief of 972 Magazine, an independent magazine run by a group of Palestinian and Israeli journalists. Joshua Leifer is a contributing editor at Jewish Currents and a Descent editorial board member. Josh Leifer and Ido Conrad, welcome to The Dig. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. This should be obvious to most listeners, but but we've got to start an episode on this conflict over Israeli democracy by explaining what sort of democracy Israel is, and really whether it's accurate to describe it as any sort of democracy at all. Because Israel, it seems, is an ethnocracy that practices a complex, variegated form of apartheid, both within the state of Israel and then also in the occupied territories. And Josh, you write it's not even really a demos that is ultimately sovereign in Israel, but but rather an ethnos. How does the Israeli system operate, not within the confines of what's being portrayed as a quote unquote domestic conflict within Israel, but how does it operate as a totality? Yeah, I mean, how to define the regime in Israel-Palestine is is a very difficult question. There have been a lot of different attempted answers. Some scholars have called it an ethnocracy because it's a state that was designed to privilege an ethno, specifically the Jewish people. And one of the things that has come to the fore in the recent protests is that like that idea of the state isn't being so much challenged, that the state was built for the Jewish people and the Jewish people are the only relevant demographic within within the state that that makes decisions even though about 20% or more of the state's population are not Jews but i also think it's important to to note that the blurriness of how to define reality in israel is intentional part of how the occupation has been able to persist for as long as it has is that it's a nominally temporary occupation that is uh, maintained in perpetuity and that is not formally annexed but is ruled by the Israeli military through a series of basically emergency decrees that have been institutionalized and so yeah there have been other 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 attempts to describe what what had the system of rule that exists there controversially in the 90s and 2000s this concept of ethnic democracy was popularized by um, the scholar Sami Smucha because he wanted to get at the fact that within the green line, there are a lot of procedural forms of procedural democracy. I mean, even Palestinian citizens of Israel 
can vote, they have representatives in the Knesset. That wasn't always the case. And one of the things that's often forgotten about Israel is that until 1966, Palestinian citizens of Israel themselves lived under military rule. And so the, the period of time in which you could even begin to describe Israel as a full democracy, which it wasn't, is like vanishingly small in the time between 1966 and, and 1967. I mean, for years, there's been conversations among scholars and activists really led by Palestinians about the definition, finding a new definition to describe the regime between the river and the sea. And I think, first of all, this was to counter this idea of Israel as a Jewish and democratic state, which is what Israel you know, has always told the world that it is, that it can both be Jewish and uphold the democratic rights of its non-Jewish citizens. And Palestinians have, have really led the charge over the last few years to, to upend that definition, to challenge it, to try and bring in new ways of thinking about this regime. And you know, whether they talk about apartheid or they talk about settler colonialism or they talk about ethnocracy, there's, there's good ways to think about all these definitions and how they apply to this regime. But I think first and foremost, this idea of Jewish and democratic needs to be challenged because it's done such a, such a favor for Israel on the world stage. And, and a lot of people have bought into this idea that Israel can hold itself accountable and that it has free elections, and which it does, but it has these trappings of, of a democratic state. But at its core, what I like to refer to it is, is uh, what Shira Robinson, the historian Shira Robinson, calls a liberal settler state in which there is some kind of compromise between the settler ambitions of the settler colonial ambitions of the state, which go to its DNA, to its core, to its very, even before the state was established, and these these kind of democratic trappings of elections and equal rights. Ido and I have talked recently about about Shira Robinson's book, which is called Citizen Strangers. It's an ama- it's it's amazing, and and highly recommend that people take a look at it. Which is that what makes Israel a liberal settler state is that it it takes the liberal emphasis on procedural neutrality and, and upholds it on the one. And so it can say, look, we extended the franchise to Palestinian citizens of Israel, but the entire mechanisms of the state are devoted towards not only making Jewish settlement permanent, but allowing it to expand basically indefinitely. And that the settler side of the state is also about making it impossible for settlement to be undone, for Palestinian refugees to return. Now, post-1967, for settlements to be to be withdrawn. And that's part of also the reason why you could say that the regime is fractured in the way that it is, because the fracturing of the regime across different tiers uh, also divides Palestinians into different different kinds of subjects, and that makes it more difficult for them to resist. So within 1948 Israel, you have Palestinians who are citizens of the state of Israel. Then you have East Jerusalem Palestinians who are residents of East Jerusalem, but are not citizens of Israel. And Israel unilaterally annexed East Jerusalem, but at that annexation is not internationally recognized. And then you have the West Bank, where Palestinians are, are subjects of Israeli military rule, but also exist within the legal fiction that is the Palestinian Authority. And all of this, when you zoom out, makes it very, very difficult to have a coherent Palestinian national political struggle between the river and the sea. And that that is one of the successes of, of the Zionist movement, that it has managed to fracture the Palestinian national movement in this way is to make it very difficult to resist. It makes a really cogent analysis of what's going on difficult 
not only for the, for the Palestinian national movement, but also for us as people looking on, as people who are trying to resist or people who are in solidarity, people are studying this topic. It, it makes it really, really difficult to, to understand what's what's happening all the time and to see all these moving parts and how they affect one another. I think also at, at the end of the day, it's important to say that Israel doesn't have internationally recognized borders even today. You know, like the occupation is is an expansion of this kind of this colonial impulse, the this settler colonial impulse or just plain settler colonialism that's at the heart of the Zionist project. Because the 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 project of colonization is not yet over. Israel is still colonizing land in the occupied West Bank. It's still taking land in the Galilee, which is inside Israel's formal borders. And in the Negev, in the Nakab Desert, it's still taking land. It's still proposing to establish new Jewish-only settlements. So this colonial project is from the moment that Zionist settlers landed in Palestine. And until today, this project is ongoing. You know, in, in many ways, settler colonialism is an ongoing project everywhere, no matter how longstanding any particular settler or colonial project is, let's say the United States. But... Israel is still very much in the kind of the foundational phase of its settler colonial project. The people who came here and wanted to establish a Jewish state came to a place that was surrounded by Palestinians and Arabs. And they just picked a place, I think, that 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 kind of project will be unstable in the long run. Let's spell out the key figures in in the Israeli government right now. Who are these people and parties that make up the present right-wing and far-right coalition government that has brought about this furious reaction from opposition, including, of course, Netanyahu and and far-right figures like Itamar Ben-Gavir? So I think the first thing to note about the current Netanyahu government is that it it really is probably the most right-wing government in, in Israeli history. It's comprised of Netanyahu's Likud party, which used to be Israel's free market liberal party that always had a territorial maximalist edge to it. The the different wings of that party vacillated between what was more important. Then there are two ultra-Orthodox or Haredi parties in the coalition. One represents Jews of East European descent, Ashkenazi Jews, and the other represents Jews of uh, Middle East and North African descent, or Sephardi Jews. And then there's basically one other party list that's actually comprised of a bunch of different more far-right parties. The whole list is called religious Zionism, but then there's also the religious Zionist party, which has its roots in a in a in a much older party that was around from the founding of the state, but it, its current descendants are a kind of radicalized expression of the religious Zionist settler movement. That party is led by a man named Petsalo Smotrich, who is the finance minister currently. And th- within the broader list, they then split up once they were once they were in the Knesset, is a party called Jewish Power, which is led by Itamar Ben-Gvir. Now, Ben-Gvir is very different than, than Smotrich. Smotrich and the Religious Zionism Party is, is what in Israel is called a sectoral party, that it represents a specific sociological niche demographic who are religious Zionists, generally settlers, but not only. They live either in the settlements in the West Bank or in religious towns and communities in Israel. They have their own school system and youth movements, and there's a whole educational social infrastructure within which they live. Ben Gvir's party is a, is a extremist nationalist party that has its roots in the Kach 
Party, which was founded by Rabbi Meir Kahana, who was a Brooklyn-born Jewish extremist terrorist. He founded a group called the Jewish Defense League in New York that did basically Jewish vigilante justice in places like Flatbush and also, I mean, engaged in other kinds of political terrorism. He moved to Israel, founded a political party. And before the man who Itamar Ben-Gvir worked for, a guy named Michael Ben-Ari, only Kahana had been elected to the Knesset from this stream of, of what is basically religious Zionist fascism. It, its ideological difference is that it's more much more explicitly racist. It conceives of the Palestinian Arab threat in distinctly racial terms. So part of Kahana's platform and, and what got him banned from running for the Knesset in the 80s was that he wanted to ban outright marriages between Jews and Palestinians. It wanted to have separate like accommodations in public life for Jews and Palestinians to formalize segregation that still exists de facto. It's the discrimination still exists de facto in Israel, but it's not really legislated in a lot of in the, in the public in that way. Probably the most important part of Kahana's agenda was that it was exterminationist vis-a-vis the Palestinians. There have been different strands within religious Zionism broadly about about what to do with what they call kind of quote unquote the Palestinian problem transfer which is as in the forced transfer of Palestinians out of the territory under Israeli Jewish control has always has long been a part of the settler rights agenda. As a side note, in Israeli politics, when you vote, you put a a note in the ballot box and each has a Hebrew letter on it. Some of them mean things, some of them don't mean things. But for a very long time, this tendency within the religious Zionist movement has been represented by the letter Tet, which signifies transfer. And that's currently part of the the note of the religious, broader religious Zionism list. But to fast forward to the present, the Jewish Power Party has recently put a little less emphasis on the kind of like race science, frontally exterminationist rhetoric and, and speaks in terms of Jewish security, in terms of Jewish sovereignty. So their electoral campaign just now was literally it translated to we are the landlords, but it's actually like we run the show, we run the place. That was their election campaign. But Ben Gvir also wants to expel forcibly the Palestinians from uh, the territories under under Jewish control. But the reason why I brought up the difference between their party orientation is that because Ben Gvir's party is an extremist populist party, it draws its support from a range of different segments of Israeli society. So you have people who vote for that party who are part of the kind of marginalized Mizrahi working class. You have people who are leaving ultra-Orthodox society also vote for that party. You also just have a lot of secular ultra-nationalists. And his party list has representatives of all of those demographics on it, basically. He's kind of like an all-Israel party. In some ways, it's it's the more extreme version of Likud in a lot of ways. And when people switch from different parties, like when Ben Gvir's party rises in the polls, it's often at the expense of people who would have voted for, for the Likud. It's it's also important to note that Ben Gvir is the national security minister. He is now in charge of the police. And just a, a few days ago, was able to convince Benjamin Netanyahu to give him his own private militia, which is, he's been very, very clear about it being used against enemies of the Jewish people, which is Palestinian citizens, Palestinians in Jerusalem, Palestinians in general. Smotrich is both the finance minister and the minister in charge of the civil administration. That's the kind of body 
that runs the day-to-day life of millions of Palestinians in the occupied West Bank, infrastructure, roads, health, et cetera, et cetera. So these are the two people who are in charge of Palestinian life and the defense, so-called the defense of, of Jewish life against Palestinians. Smotrich does come from the kind of religious Zionist sector of society, which, which you know, historically has its liberal, more liberal wing, has its more moderate wing, and has its more right-wing extremist wing. And Smotrich definitely comes from its right-wing extremist wing. But there is this kind of interesting interplay between the kind of Ben Gvirist ideology and the religious Zionist ideology, where the Ben Gvirist Kahanist ideology has pulled so much of Israeli politics to the right, including Smotrich's party. Smotrich is kind of this, maybe like a paragon of that today, but you know, this is someone who openly has protested pride parades in Jerusalem. He had a, the beast parade where they, they brought a bunch of animals, like cows and donkeys to protest queer folks marching in Jerusalem, a place that is not a, an easy place to march if you're, if you're an openly queer person. He's called for separating between Palestinian and Jewish women in maternity wards in Israel. So this is someone who might not come from that exterminationist school of thought, but really like he is uh, today, there's less of a difference, I'd say, between the two, maybe a semantic difference between the two. You know, Smotrich in 2017 published a a plan called the Israel Decisive Plan. I think that's what it was called, in which he basically outlines what will happen if Palestinians in the occupied territories after Israel annexes, formally annexes the West Bank, which is the plan, right? This is very much what Smotrich was elected to do. And his entire kind of, his entire, everyone is, is on board in that far, in the far right settler camp to do this thing. What does that plan look like? It means we annex millions of Palestinians and they can live as subjects of an Israeli dictatorship, essentially, in the West Bank. And if they don't like it, they can leave. And if they don't leave, we're going to make them leave. And this is kind of part of both, I think, what Smotrich and Ben Gvir have in common, which is they understand that there's a collision between Palestinians and the Zionist movement. And there's always been a collision between the Zionist movement and the indigenous Palestinian population. And they want to have a decisive kind of final battle between these two groups. Uh, and this is what they're gunning for. It's not a coincidence also that like they have they have an eschatological ideology. Like I I think it's easy to forget because when we do sec we do politics, we do politics in the secular realm, but these are people who are mess they are messianic religious believers. Smotrich is much more engaged in the theological side than Ben Gvir. Ben Gvir kind of has the like vigilante street gang element of the of the politics but what they share is a vision of the future whereby in some ways it's almost like a religious post-zionism they're going to replace the secular state with a jewish kingdom with a halachic kingdom that will be run according to jewish law they will institute forms of jewish legal rule like a rabbinic court that will adjudicate also civil affairs and as part of the instantiation of this kingdom, which is also preparation for the messianic, the arrival of the messianic era, there is this kind of almost judgment day conflict with the Palestinians that they that the Palestinian problem, as they frame it, has to be solved finally in order to bring about the redemption. And does the foundation of that kingdom precipitate the the, the apocalypse or the coming of the Messiah or what? What does the kingdom kick off? 
Yeah, the kingdom kicks off another another era in in, in messianic time. I mean, we don't know when the mess. I think they would say like we don't know when the Messiah is going to come. But what separates the religious Zionist parties, and now I include Jewish power and religious Zionism together, is that religious Zionism, not despite but perhaps because of its fundamentalism, embraces certain elements of modernity. What I mean by that is that it views the secular state as a means to its end of bringing about the messianic age. That is a break with what has been the traditional Orthodox view of the secular state. So the ultra-Orthodox parties, the Haredi parties, have tried to approach the state as an instrument to securing sort of traditional Jewish life, yeshiva education, funding for educational institutions, the protection of traditional forms of religious observance, separation between the genders at religious sites. But they 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 don't ascribe religious significance to the secular state. For them, for the Haredi parties, Jews may be back in what you would call the land of Israel and Eretz Yisrael, but that doesn't mean that the state that they live under has any special significance. For, for the religious Zionists, the fact that the state was founded within the land means that it is a proof that the dawning of redemption is at hand. That's the that's kind of the language that they use part of the the problem and 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 there are arguments about to what extent this phenomenon is advanced but it has become harder even for the ultra orthodox parties to maintain a separation between between religion and state and so for example for a long time these parties wouldn't serve as ministers in the government because that would entail recognizing the sovereignty of the jewish state so they served as deputy ministers so that they wouldn't have to make decisions also that would force them to violate jewish law or halakha but that's not really that's that tendency is much weaker than it was before. And that distinction is much less important than it was in the past. A big part of the reason for the popularity of, of the religious Zionist Party and Jewish power has to do with May 2021, which I think was a breaking point in the history of the state of Israel, in which following uh, events that took place in Sheikh Jarrah, the attempted expulsion of Palestinian families from that neighborhood, attacks on Palestinian worshippers by police at Al-Aqsa Mosque and an onslaught on Gaza, there was a full-blown conflagration across the country, mostly in, in so-called mixed cities between Palestinian citizens and Jewish Israeli citizens. And it was, it was bloody. I think two Israeli Jews were killed. Uh, one Palestinian was killed, a Palestinian citizen of Israel. And I mean, these were riots that lasted for, for days. There was gunfire in the street, rock throwing, lynch mobs, and certainly a lot of police brutality from the Israeli state. And I think this kind of led to a lot of Jewish communities, particularly in these mixed cities uh, where Palestinian citizens and Israeli Jews live together. Most of these Jews come from Mizrahi and more working class backgrounds, caused a lot of these Jews to actually say, okay, now is the time to vote for the people who say they're going to protect us. And they turned to Ben Gvir and Smotrich, but, but mostly Ben Gvir, who, whose slogan, is, as Josh said, was, we are the lords of the land. We are the landlords. We're going to show you who's in charge here. Why have these ongoing conflicts within Zionist politics and conflicts that I think are much less visible to outsiders traditionally because of the so-called Israeli-Palestinian conflict, or in other words, the unified Zionist project, of doing settler colonialism and apartheid. Why have these ongoing conflicts, which have been ongoing for quite a long time, reached this present crisis point in the way that they have around the issue of the courts and the independence of the judiciary? 
partially because of May 2021, but partially because other processes that Israeli Jewish society has undergone. The right radicalized and became a revolutionary force. It has a it has a revolutionary political horizon. It wants to overthrow the existing order. It wants to annex the West Bank, and it wants to expel the Palestinians who are living there, whether that's after they refuse to agree to live as perpetually subjugated people in Bantu stands or not. That's the end goal. And people with this, with these views have gained positions of power and are now in a position, at least they thought, to begin executing it. The reason why this has generated conflict is that on the there isn't really a countervailing force ideologically within Israeli society on a principled level, other than to say, like, we don't want, we don't want a judgment day war. We don't want a final decisive conflict. The 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 opposition to the radicalized right is is in general in opposition of maintaining the status quo, basically like apartheid maintenance versus expulsion and, and extermination. So at the political level, this tension has kind of reached re- reached a boiling point. It's not the only reason why the settler right wants to strip the judiciary of its power, but it is a large part of why it wants to do that. And within the settler right imagination, there's a long history of the institutions of the state repressing the movement of being obstacles to to their goal and so now that they have seized the mechanisms of the state they want to they want to do the thing basically that to me is part of the reason why this has come to a head now there are obviously like a lot of other contingent factors like netanyahu like political leader issues of political leadership international affairs all that all that stuff but i but i, I think like at least at the ideological level that seems to be what's happening yeah i'd say if you take a step further back and you look a little bit more historically there's been a breakdown or a complete end to what is called the Oslo process, which began in the 1990s and was supposed to kind of be the the, the road to the final status agreement between Israel and the Palestinians. And for, for years, you know, I'd say the Jewish community, the Israeli Jewish community, the Zionist movement has had arguments among itself about what kind of settler colonialism and what kind of, you know, regime to institute in uh, historic Palestine. And I think Oslo for the kind of uh, liberal left and the center left was the way to to close that chapter to say, okay, we've taken the land that we needed in 1948. We're going to slowly move toward ending military rule in the occupied territories. Some people might disagree with that, but but at least that's the kind of general narrative of, of how I think people told themselves that story. And a lot of things happened along the way to to end that uh, resistance by Palestinians, the assassination of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, the election of Benjamin Netanyahu and the re-election of Benjamin Netanyahu over and over again, really kind of put an end to that process. And that that process, I think, was in a way emblematic of the left-right divide historically in Israel. And when that process breaks down and there are no more there is no more horizon for the opposition camp. There is a horizon for the right camp, right? There's a forever annexation, let's say maybe minoritarian rule, apartheid, fascism. There is that kind of horizon for them. The other camp doesn't have that. And I think that that leads to a a situation in which for the most part, like the center left and the center has gone along with a lot of what the right has wanted over the, the last 20 to 30 years. How did Israeli politics end up polarizing specifically around the person of Bibi Netanyahu? Because a weird thing about the opposition coalitions that have existed is that it includes right-wing figures like 
Naftali Bennett. Why did this particularly extremely personalistic form of polarization become the dominant force in Israeli politics? And is it fair to say that if politics were not polarized around Netanyahu, the person, then Israel would simply just have an unassailable right-wing majority? Earlier this summer, last summer, this past summer, I was I was uh, reporting a piece and I, I talked to um, a member of the activist left who does kind of electoral campaigning, had been involved with stuff with the joint list. And he was saying to me, look, like things are definitely bad. And you might say that having to have a political terrain structured by yes, Netanyahu, no Netanyahu is intellectually simplistic and boring and stupid, but it's actually much better than the alternative, that it's created actually a lot more political possibility than there would have existed otherwise, because if Netanyahu wasn't the leader of of Likud, you probably would be able to have like a 70 seat coalition that would include basically like whatever parts of Likud were not fully co-opted by the Netanyahu cult of personality, Benny Gantz's National Unity Party, the ultra-Orthodox parties probably would have joined, Avigdor Lieberman's party would have joined, maybe even like the rump of labor and and depending on how like the coalition negotiations shook out, maybe even the centrist centrist party, Yeshatid, led by Yair Lapid, although he he his party is so anti-clerical and so militantly secularist that part of part of it in the background of the kind of electoral dysfunction of Israel is that he basically can't be prime minister and have a coalition because he the his party and the ultra-orthodox parties can't sit together. So in some ways, that the the instability that's been created as a result of the polarization around Netanyahu has has enabled there to be at least a conversation about political like political flexibility. It's not just occupation maintenance into perpetuity as as it might have been. But actually, I do think things have changed since last summer, and that as the right has radicalized, so too has the anti-Netanyahu camp, and that there are some segments of this movement, however inchoate it is that understand now what the the meaning of the right's revolutionary agenda and 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 kind of radical horizon. And so there's a little bit more of a substantive basis to their opposition. It's not merely personalistic. Look, I think that the Israeli kind of classic liberal Ashkenazi establishment, the one that that founded the state, the one that has for decades run the, the economy and culture uh, and the military, they see in Netanyahu, first of all, an interloper. This guy, you know, has comes from the United States for the most part. He was born in Jerusalem, but he spent time in the United States. And they see him as a, as a kind of interloper. He did not come from any of the major party organs of the Likud, whereas, you know, his, his predecessors did. They fought in the kind of the Zionist militia, terrorist groups, the Menachem Begin and and Yitzhak Shamir, they they are considered kind of war heroes of the 1948 war. People who took part in in the Nakba, the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in in 1948. And Netanyahu doesn't have any of that, and so people I think see him as this like, first of all, ruthless, extremely ruthless, pushing his way to the top of the party, taking down people who have been there for decades and have worked very hard to get there. People who have represented you know marginalized community, the Mizrahi community in Likud. And they see him as as an outsider who came came and did this. And at the end of the day, I think today the this radical right block that he's assembled, people for better or for worse, whether whether it's whether it's true or not, they they kind of see him as representative of all of the ills of Israeli society. I'm talking about from the the point of view of the the kind of liberal establishment. They see him as the person who 
will bow to the, the religious, the ultra-Orthodox, to working-class Mizra- Mizrahim. And so it's really easy, I think, to put all of those things on him. And I think in that way, there, is, there are similarities between him and Trump. How have, have Likud, alongside far-right parties like Jewish Power, and then religious parties like, like Shas, made this dominant far-right coalition into not only this racist and nationalist one, but also such a thoroughly religious and traditionalist politics? I mean, on, on a political level, Netanyahu understood, has understood long time ago that he does not have a coalition without the religious parties and without the Haredi parties, including Shas. And he's made overtures over the years to these religious parties. There's one famous quote in which he was heard in a hot mic telling a Shas rabbi that the left forgot what it means to be Jewish, you know, and this was kind of this pivotal moment in his relationship with the ultra-Orthodox community, with the Haredi community and with the Shas party. And, and really, I think, understood how the game how the game is played and understood that just in terms of like sheer political survival, he understood this way long ago that he will have to make common cause with them. Yeah, I mean, one way to think about the chain of equivalences that he managed to stitch together was that he took Likud, territorial maximalist ideology. He took the kind of communitarian tribalist element of Mizrahi traditionalist working class Jewish identity that also was related to a defensive tradition for the Haredi parties, which enabled a partnership with the religious nationalists who actually then situated themselves at at the vanguard of this formation because they have both. They have both Jewish law, Torah, and they have territory. And they're the articulators, the intellectual leaders in some sense of how this all all comes together and 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 it breaks down along the lines that Ido was talking about, which these this coalition views itself as defending Jews, defending Jewishness, and defending the land of Israel in its broader sense as a, the biblical promise to the Jewish people. And they were able to juxtapose that to what was Israel, which was supposed to be the civic secular state of the Jewish people that maybe had a room for a kind of pluralistic civic identity, but that was never articulated. The late sociologist Baruch Kimmerling draws this distinction between the state of Israel and Eretz Yisrael, the state of Israel and the land of Israel, and that there was always this tension between the two that Zionism never wanted to resolve. And the right and this coalition that Netanyahu has structured basically resolves it entirely in favor of the land of Israel. But the secular Zionists, especially after 1977, when Menachem Begin was elected, which was the first transfer of power that ended labor Zionist rule, basically labor Zionism never recovered. It never was able to articulate a new vision for concretizing a different conception of the state. And so like they basically have lost over and over again. And and obviously like this wasn't foreordained in 77. Netanyahu has been really skilled in enabling people to see, to overlook the obvious contradictions. Like he eats shellfish, which is not allowed, like in, on the Sabbath, you know, like he flagrantly violates Jewish law. So this outrages secular Israelis because they're like, how could this man, in a lot of ways, the way like some, not so different from Trump and evangelicals, they look at him, they're like, this man flagrantly violates the precepts of religion, of religion. And yet the faithful continue to vote for him. But what they they miss is that they the faithful view him as a defender, however flawed, of the things that they hold dear against people who would violate them. Right. The hypocrisy is not a contradiction that can be 
exploited so much as like the hypocrisy is itself like constitutive in some way of the alliance. Israel has, I think, a, a dozen party or party alliances in the Knesset. And those parties, with the exception of the Palestinian formations that we'll talk about more later, they represent various demographic divides that cut through the Jewish-Israeli polity. And two that come to mind are, are, are secular versus religious and then Ashkenazi Jews of, of European origin versus the Mizrahim from the Middle East. We've inevitably already touched on both of these things continuously throughout the interview, but just to address them head on, what, what are these divides and how do they structure Zionist politics? I mean, the, the, the division between the religious parties and the secular Zionist parties is as old as the state. And it is very fundamental. It is a very, it's probably one of the most fundamental divisions within Israeli politics. It almost, they were so divided that it almost prevented the signing of, famously, the signing of Israel's Declaration of Independence because the secular Zionists didn't want to mention God in the Declaration of Independence. And the religious parties were, obviously opposed to not mentioning God. So they compromised on a term that in Hebrew is Tzul Yisrael, but it means like the rock of Israel, which is a biblical term from like the, and or liturgical term. And that kind of squared the circle enough for them to sign, sign it. But basically since then, there has been an ongoing argument about what will be, what is the place of Jewish law in the Jewish state? What is the place of Torah study as a, as a way of life in the Jewish state? And so part of the compromise that ended up being struck uh, in what's now called like the status quo is that Ben-Gurion said, I'll let the ultra-Orthodox have their courts. They'll run marriage. They'll run divorce. They'll run basically like life, death, conversion. That'll all be taken care of by the Orthodox rabbinate. And and the reason why Ben-Gurion did this was because he, like any kind of East European Marxist uh, inflected person thought that religion was going to vanish from the earth. He did not think that there was any future for kind of what he saw as a backwards ultra orthodoxy in the in the revolutionary Zionist state that he was building. He ended up being very, very wrong. And things that resulted from the status quo agreement, like the exemption of people studying Torah from being drafted into the army, have now become huge hinge issues in contemporary Israeli politics. I mean, it's actually hard to overstate how significant this issue is. It it is in the background of a lot of the ongoing protests even today that that secular Israelis view the ultra orthodox who who men who study full time as as freeloaders as not contributing to Israeli society because the ultra orthodox tend to have bigger families and and are 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 less wealthy and less and and require government assistance like the there's a whole rhetoric of the ultra orthodox as as parasitical. Now, on the flip side of this, there are other issues that that are part of the religious secular divide. For instance, if you want to get married in Israel and have that marriage recognized by the state within Israel, it has to be carried out by an Orthodox rabbi. There are a lot of secular Israelis who don't want to do that. And so they get married in places like Cyprus or elsewhere. And then the state retroactively recognizes the non-Orthodox denominations of Judaism are basically not recognized by the state of Israel because of the Orthodox monopoly. So if a person who is not Jewish is in Israel and wants to convert, they have to convert with an Orthodox rabbi. They can't convert with a reformer or conservative rabbi. The issues of what what is called like religious pluralism, I don't think motivate the current cleavage in Israeli society as much as issues like the draft and also LGBT rights. I mean, this this has become, it's really, it's, I think it's very, very striking that 
the two flags that you see in the ongoing protests are the Israeli flag and the pride flag. And that there is a real sense that LGBT rights, the gains, which are not actually as substantial as Israel would make you think they are, but that basically the carve outs for the rights of sexual minorities to basically be out in Israel would be threatened were the religious parties to have their way. And I mean, the religious parties have also said this. It's Smotrich who is doing the March of the Beast, but also members of Netanyahu's own party, the Likud, which was, again, once the liberal party who will say things like, I support civil rights. And then you ask, what civil rights do? Would you support gay rights? And I'm like, no, 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 those, I didn't mean that. And this this happened in a recent interview with a Likud member named uh, Shlomo Kalhi, who is a kind of on the more extreme populist edge of uh, Netanyahu's party. So the, the Ashkenazi Mizrahi divide is interesting because for so long, one of its like kind of mythical powers is that it doesn't exist, that Israeli kind of mainstream society and the mainstream culture kind of denies that there is a divide, that there was racism against Mizrahim. And if there was at best, you know, it happened a long time ago. There's intermarriage today between Ashkenazi Jews, Jews who hail from uh, Europe, mostly Eastern Europe, who were the founders of Israel and the, the people in power for many, many decades in terms of in terms of culture, the economy, the military, and all those things. And Mizrahi Jews, Jews who come from Arab or Muslim lands whose origins are in those countries and, and came mostly after the founding of the state in the 50s and in the 60s and found a very kind of inhospitable Ashkenazi elite that threw them into kind of far-flung development towns after keeping them in Ma'abarot, which is kind of these transit camp slash refugee camps where Mizrahi Jews stayed for up to eight years sometimes while Ashkenazi immigrants who had come at the exact same time as many of these Mizrahi Jews were given housing and good jobs and put kind of into high positions in the state apparatus, into the ruling Mapai party. And so Mizrahi Jews, I think, know very well that all of this is, is bullshit and have for decades been talking about this. There's always been a, a, a radical Mizrahi left that has railed against the suppression, uh, has sought connections with Palestinians to, to form like bonds of solidarity with Palestinians against the Ashkenazi ruling class. And yet this 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 thing persists as much as people want to want to deny it. And I think today what Josh was kind of talking about a little bit earlier, the far right settlers and Likud party have taken it on themselves to represent these grievances, uh, these very, very justifiable grievances of uh, Mizrahi Jews who used the Likud party for years uh, in order to advance their cause, to seek remedy for housing and work and poor education. And so the Likud party has always been in, in many ways representative of those grievances, but has never allowed Mizrahim to really climb to the top of the party organs. So that's why you have over decades, every Likud party leader has been Ashkenazi, has been, you know, has been part of the mythological founders of the state up to Netanyahu. And one thing that you don't read much of in American press coverage of Israeli politics or Israel-Palestine in general is, is political economy and class. To what extent there are we seeing a class conflict and perhaps a somewhat racialized one within the Jewish-Israeli polity? And then how do we make sense of such a conflict, a class conflict taking place within the dominant ethno-national bloc of an ethno-state? I think it's always been it's always been a class conflict and a racial conflict among the, the dominant ethno-bloc. When Mizrahim came here, when they came to Israel, they were proletarianized almost immediately. They were turned into a working class that allowed the creation of a new layer of an Ashkenazi elite, uh, middle upper class that really exploited, really, really exploited in, in awful ways uh, Mizrahi labor 
at the same time that they exploited Palestinian labor, uh, obviously in, in very different ways. But but these grievances are class-based grievances and ethnic-based grievances. They've always gone together, I think. And, and that's something that really characterizes, I think, Israeli society. If you're looking at Jewish Israeli society, that class is always inflected by ethnicity and ethnicity is always inflected by by class. You can't really speak about them in different terms. I think that 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 may be one of the kind of roadblocks that kind of a strict materialist analysis runs into in Israel when you're when you're looking at at Israeli history and you're looking at the Israeli present, that, that these things have always gone hand in hand. To riff on Stuart Hall's famous quip that race is the modality through which classes lived, I would go back to the hegemonic formation that Netanyahu has been able to construct. And one of the things that undergirds that formation is the sense that affiliation to traditional Judaism is the modality through which classes lived, that what unites the ultra-Orthodox and the Mizrahim, and even to some extent the settlers, is the sense that they are oppressed and disadvantaged by the secular elite. The language through which they articulate their defense is in the language of a defense of Jewish traditionalism, oftentimes. I mean, Shas, as the Sephardi ultra-Orthodox party, is also, at least in rhetoric, the one of the most, like probably at this point, the most redistributionist, socially oriented parties in terms of speaking about class class division, because its base are largely Mizrahi working class people. But even if that's sometimes a mobilizing rhetoric, it's in service of the restoration of the place of the traditional Mizrahi or Sephardi Jew to a place of honor and, and status. Shas was the previous iteration of a kind of conservative right-wing religious populist class war politics. And its leader, Ariaderi, is a kind of a recurring character in the story of the consolidation of the Israeli right. I mean, he was arguably and still is the organic populist leader of the Mizrahi working class. At one point, he people thought that he could be one day like the first ultra-Orthodox prime minister of the state of Israel. That that may or may not happen. I mean, he is, he's not that old even, but I mean, he's like in his 60s now which he's been around a long time, but all of which is to say that it is a class fight, but it's it's not always waged in class terms. I think it's important to note about Shas that, you know, Arya Derry wasn't only seen as a potential first ultra-Orthodox prime minister. Like people really thought of him as a Martin Luther King type character. I think people in, in his community and a lot of Mizrahim looked up to him as, as a, a freedom fighter. And someone who was going to get justice for the larger Mizrahi community, not only for religious Sephardic Jews. And in many ways, Shas was kind of this, the only party in the 90s as Israel was going through this kind of economic change, neoliberalizing after the, the late 1980s and into the 90s. It was the only party that had any political power that really stood and tried to stand in the way of that, as even the liberal and the kind of the Zionist left parties, for the most part, went along with neoliberalism and the the slow disillusion of the welfare state, Shas stood their ground and said, we're not going to do that. And this, I think, also is part of the reason why the establishment has always hated Derry, much the same way that they've always hated Benjamin Netanyahu. And, and this makes Israel less unique in, in some way than other places. But one of the ironies is that 
even though Shas has opposed a lot of the neoliberalization, at least in theory, it's also been part of successive Netanyahu governments that have pursued neoliberal economic policies. And so you have a situation where the government that is carrying out neoliberalization and it's it's under Netanyahu that Israeli high tech has taken off and that the winners of capitalist globalization who are have 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 kind of seceded from like working class Israeli society. It's these conditions that also produce the forces of backlash. It's kind of this feedback loop because the people, the, the people who have been the main beneficiaries of the tech boom, I mean, there is a growing Mizrahi middle class and, and kind of Mizrahi bourgeoisie. And that's that's also part of the story of the protest to some degree. And and and, and they're and sort of the key demographic to the future of Israeli politics. But the main winners of Israeli capitalist globalization have been has been the old elite, the people who were in elite military units that were part of a kind of broader network of that segued into the high-tech economy. And so there's this irony, not unlike what you see in other countries where that have also experienced a right-wing populist backlash, where the party that has produced the underlying conditions and inequality for the backlash is also the one that's the main electoral beneficiary of the backlash. Where do Jews from the former Soviet Union fit into this class-inflected Ashkenazi-Mizrahim divide? I mean, I think it's I think it's a little unclear today. I think when they first came to Israel, most of them came to Israel in in the early '90s, following the the fall of the Soviet Union. Throughout the '90s and into the 2000s, I think they were firmly on the right, represented by Avigdor Lieberman, who is considered kind of this nationalist hawk. One of the most, you know, before this, the formation of this very very far right block that we see today, Lieberman was considered the most far right leader in Israeli in, in, in Israeli politics. And, and you know, he wasn't a Kahanist like Ben Gvir, but he said pretty similar things. He called for the execution of uh, Palestinian citizens and to basically expel Palestinian citizens into the West Bank. He came up with an entire plan for that and, and ran on, on basically a nationalist platform for many years. And he was able to garner a lot of votes from the former Soviet Union. He's uh, from the former Soviet Union himself. He today is considered one of the faces of the opposition camp, you know, of the liberal camp. So he went through this transformation over the last few years in which he broke with Netanyahu. He was one of Netanyahu's biggest allies in the early 2010s, broke from Netanyahu and decided to to switch camps. And today, I think also a similar thing happened with Russian Jews, with Jews of the former Soviet Union. You see them in many more places, I think, in, in the economy. They live all across the country, no longer in the kind of the places that Israel put them in when they first came here in the 90s. A lot of them were sent to the West Bank as settlers. So I think there's just a greater diversification of of them across the the political divide in Israel today and across the economy as well. One non-materialist way to think about the trajectories of former Soviet immigrants is in terms of generations, that the generation of the immigration is still very right wing and identified largely with Lieberman's party. I think today that's generally his base and and, and Russian speakers as kind of the the, the demographic that you would use. But second, second and, and even third generation are identified across a range of parties. You can find people with that background across the the gamut of of Israeli political parties. But one commonality that I think has does continue through the generations is in general a strong secularism, a strong commitment to secularism. And this is, to me, is the issue that brought Lieberman, it's not the only issue because there are personal elements to his his relationship with Netanyahu, but at least in terms of ideology, what brought Lieberman 
from Netanyahu's block into the opposition block are, are issues of religion and state. Lieberman despises the ultra-Orthodox parties. He says things that would, in other terms, be like racist towards them. And there is a little bit of substance to that, which is that when some of the immigrants from the former Soviet Union arrived in Israel, they arrived under the law of return, which allows anyone with a one Jewish grandparent to receive Israeli citizenship. But that is different from the religious legal status that determines who is a Jew, which is having a Jewish mother. And so a lot of the former Soviet immigrants were not recognized as religiously legal Jews or halakhically Jews when they arrived. And that has caused that caused challenges for them in a lot of stretches of, of life. For instance, Israel has has a chief rabbinate. Within the army, there is also a rabbinate. And one of the things that was part of the integration of former Soviet immigrants was that they often had to undergo conversions in the army. And this sense among some of the immigrants that they aren't fully Jews and therefore not fully Israelis engendered a, a resentment towards the towards the religious parties that I think still persists. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The New Cold War, The United States, Russia, and China, From Kosovo to Ukraine, by Jilber Ashkar. How did we get here? As leading international relations scholar, Jilber Ashkar details in this book, the rivalries of the Cold War didn't disappear with the collapse of the Soviet Union. They simply mutated into new forms. Frighteningly, the new Cold War has become increasingly hot in the European theater, ratcheting up tensions in ways we have yet to reckon with. As Noam Chomsky puts it, Learned and incisive, ranging easily from broad geopolitical analysis to the details of policy formation, this masterful study of the new Cold War of the past 30 years by the scholar who first identified and studied it is an indispensable guide to the current global disorder and its ominous portent. The New Cold War by Jilber Ashkar out now from Haymarket Books and available at haymarketbooks.org where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. How did the contradictions of the decades of labor Zionist hegemony facilitate the rise of what we might call the the more mainstream right wing and then also this more recently ascendant far right right wing politics that begin to displace the foundational order in the 1970s, and then to really all but destroy it. It's hard to think of of a parliamentary democracy where the center left and left have been as thoroughly liquidated as Israel. It's really centrist party formations being the only substantial of still very much minority opposition to the right. What happened? I mean, I can I can start with the president. Maybe Josh can kind of talk a little bit at the past, but the, the Israeli center and the popularity of the Israeli center is a, a byproduct of the, the the collapse of the Israeli left. And the Israeli left for decades, and especially since the Oslo era, has hitched its wagon to this idea that the occupation will end and there will be the establishment of a Palestinian state and will secure Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. And once this doesn't happen, 
And once the Second Intifada breaks out and Ehud Barak, who's the prime minister at the time, effectively says there is no partner for peace with the Palestinians. He is telling the camp that elected him that our entire reason for being, it's over. There's no reason for us to be here anymore. And, and in many ways, kills his own camp after, uh, you know, years after uh, Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated. This is kind of the second big blow to the so-called Israeli peace camp. And into that comes the Israeli center, which was always a, a historically kind of neoliberal bourgeois set of parties in Israeli society that say, okay, we are now for the most part going to focus on stabilizing the Israeli economy, growing the Israeli economy. They're extremely, extremely secular. So putting an end to religious domination of public life, maybe even passing a constitution, stabilizing the country, perhaps through removing settlers from certain parts of the occupied territories. This was uh, Sharon's plan, Ariel Sharon's plan for the, the Gaza disengagement. He actually had to break from his the Likud party in order to form the so-called centrist Kadima party, a party that no longer exists, but was kind of this one of the big centrist parties of, of, the, of the early 2000s in order to uh, remove settlers from Gaza. Over the last two decades, the centrist focused much more on those issues and particularly on the economy, while the left has floundered because it just it's its entire reason for being, namely, you know, peace in quotes with the Palestinians is no longer on the horizon after after it did such a good job at at killing them. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you if you look a little bit in the longer array, labor Zionism is a strange synthesis in a lot of ways. And I think that its socialist internationalist credentials have have kind of been exaggerated or romanticized a little bit. And what I mean by that is that by a strange synthesis is that it combined basically corporatist, state-run, developmentalist economy. So in that way, maybe also kind of socialist or social democratic, depending on how you want to frame it, with the territorial and cultural ideal of pioneering settlement. And the kibbutz was supposed to be the emblematic synthesis of these two things. It was communal living. It was communalized. There wasn't private property, but it was also a vanguard frontier settlement securing the borders and geographic contiguity of the state. Two things or a bunch of different things happened that eroded the longevity of this synthesis. One was that the kibbutzim never represented the majority of Israelis. They represented the vanguard of Israeli life. They're important symbolically because they embodied the synthesis of labor Zionism. But Israel didn't build a society of kibbutzim. Israel built a modern nation state with an urban bourgeoisie and proletariat and variegated by ethno-religious distinctions, both within Jews, Jews and, and among Jews and Palestinians. And eventually the, the kibbutzim became kind of artifacts of a 20th century revolutionary ideology that was no longer really alive. I mean, the Israeli historian Tom Segev in his biography of, of David Ben-Gurion calls him a Zionist Bolshevik. And I think that captures actually like a, a really good sense of of what he was, not in the sense that he was he was as ruthless as a as a Lenin or a Trotsky, but that it reflects his view of what, how the state was meant to serve a revolutionary goal of transforming Jews and and Jewish society. And by the 1970s, that project had really run out of gas. You have the Americanization of Israel, which I think that the the full incorporation of Israel into the American sphere of influence also contributes to the end of labor Zionism. 
that part of labor Zionism's strength within Israeli society was that Israel was never a non-aligned country, but Israel played both sides for a little bit longer than is generally recognized. But by the 70s, that was no longer the case. 73, Kissinger provides essential aid to Israel to, to enable it to defeat uh, Syria and Egypt. And by then, it's off to the races in terms of Israel being basically a, a fully, fully client state of the United States. I think that also plays a role. And then I would say like the the, the other part of of this is that the labor Zionists were never able to transition from they they expired before they were able to be able to transition to a post-revolutionary state. And the people who picked up the pioneering revolutionary vanguard were the religious Zionists. So after 1967, by the 70s, you have the settler movement, Block of the Faithful in Hebrew Gusha Munim, who are leading the settlement of the West Bank. And what they're saying is, look, the kibbutzim, the labor Zionist dream, that's over. They're, they're not continuing this project of expanding the boundaries of the state, of settling Jews in the land. They are over. And we have picked up the mantle of Zionism. And, and they have continued to run with it, basically. And the thing is, they're not wrong that Ben-Gurion ideologically also was committed to the ideal of the land of Israel as much as to the state of Israel. He Part of the, the reason why Israel doesn't have a constitution is because Ben-Gurion didn't want to limit the parameters of the Zionist revolution. And so in a way, as much as the current protesters in the Israeli center would like to deny it, there's a real truth to the fact that the, the religious Zionist movement and the settlers are the actual heirs to the tradition of the settling vanguardist tradition of labor Zionism. You know, what Ben-Gurion set in motion was the this kind of first Zionist revolution. And today, I think what the, the right and the far right want to do is to bring us into the, the next era of the Zionist revolution. And, and what they see before them is the Supreme Court. And this is kind of bringing us to these kind of current judicial reforms or judicial coup, judicial overhaul, however you want, however you want to phrase it. They see before them a court that is going to hinder that and stymie that and not allow them to go all the way with that second revolution. They saw, okay, Ben-Gurion had to, in his liberal settler state, had to pay lip service to uh, free election, free and fair elections and to the establishment of a independent judiciary uh, and things that would essentially help Israel be, be recognized as a kind of social democracy, a liberal democracy in the eyes of the world. Josh mentioned being part of the Socialist International. Like there were certain things you had to do in order to become a member of the international community, especially after everyone saw that in 1948 you expelled uh, or 750,000 Palestinians from their homeland and wouldn't let them return because they're not Jewish. And the world is asking, well, what, do, what are we going to do with these people? So these are very lingering questions that linger until until today. And, and the far right sees this and, and they say, we need to get rid of all of these trappings in order to go full on with our with the second phase of the Zionist revolution. And the, Zionist, the second phase of the Zionist revolution will not pay lip service to minorities. It will not pay lip service to Palestinian citizens. On the contrary, it sees them as obstacles at best and enemies at worst. Because the apologia provided by liberalism to a certain moment in Israeli settler colonialism, it just no longer can serve that purpose. I think that's true. Yeah. In 2021, a total clown car of an anti-Netanyahu coalition formed a government, including what little is left of the center left and left, and then I think the entirety of the center, but also these various conservative and right-wing parties, and also, for the first 
time ever a Palestinian party, the Islamist party, Ram. This whole government was headed by by the centrist and secular Yair Lapid and settler leader Naftali Bennett. How did that coalition come together? It, it came together because Naftali Bennett, who was a settler leader, he led the settler council at one point. He made a very surprising decision to break with the right-wing bloc and oppose Netanyahu. And he took his party, which was a hardline right-wing party, and broke it out of the block. He also destroyed his party in the process. It fractured and he pulled the fragments of it into this government. There are some like proximate political reasons why he might have done this. One is that he is a very ambitious man and a careerist and a former high tech. He is a high tech millionaire. He made an exit of his high company that, that earned him a small fortune. And he thought that he would become sort of Israel's savior for breaking it out of the deadlock that it had been basically from 2019 until 2021. And part of why Bennett was the person to do that is that even though he at one point was also on the right flank of Israeli politics, he also talked about annexing the West Bank and also talked about dealing harshly with Palestinians who resisted annexation and, and that they would you know maybe need to leave in his, uh, in his language. But he is much more of an opportunist. And in his heart, did not have a problem with the maintenance of the occupation. He's not a revolutionary settler. He's a he's a he's what you might call like a moderate settler. He's he wants to continue the settlement enterprise, but he's not gunning for a messianic confrontation. And so he was able to kind of break off enough of the previous Netanyahu bloc to to unseat him. Now, like part of what happened was that he wanted a reward for his courage. That's why he served first as prime minister in the rotation with the Air Lapid, even though he only represented a party that I think had like seven seats. And so he got to serve first as prime minister and then Lapid served after him. Part of the issue for Bennett and that fractured his party was also that it would serve, served in a coalition for the first time with it, with the Arab-led party, Ram. But Ram and Ram's leader, Mansour Abbas, was willing to make the rhetorical concessions that at least for Bennett was able to justify to himself including Ram in that government. And that primary concession was that Mansour Abbas recognized that Israel was a Jewish state. I think it's important to note also that this, what was called the government of change in Israeli parlance was, yes, on the one hand, an, an amalgamation of parties that were really just like anti-Netanyahu parties. You had people that broke off from Likud, like uh, Gideon Saar, who is a very hawkish right-wing member of Likud, more right-wing than Netanyahu, more committed to kind of like conservative and neoliberal values even than, than Netanyahu, and certainly more to, to Israeli militarism and, and to the occupation, ideologically speaking. Join up with the Islamist party with Ram, with Naftali Bennett's party, this an outgrowth effectively of the religious Zionist movement. It's more bourgeois kind of elements of it. And Labour Party, the Labour Party and Merits, the, the kind of Zionist left wing parties. This amalgamation on its face looks like a new chapter in Israeli history. And in some ways it is, but I think it really, if you look at the things that it did over it, the course of its one year in power, it sent Israeli troops deep into the heart of refugee camps. And it started the campaign that we are still seeing as we speak, you know, the campaign of uh, Israeli soldiers going into refugee camps and killing Palestinians in numbers that we have not seen since 2005. We see a, a neoliberalization, a further neoliberalization of the Israeli economy that we didn't see under Netanyahu, and certainly not under Netanyahu uh, during the, the COVID years. Uh, and so 
in in a way, I think a lot of people were, I'd say, I'd say liberals were very pleased with this government because they were so happy to get rid of Netanyahu. They were so happy to get rid of the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox and the settlers. But in, instead they got a settler um, <laughs> and a bunch of centrists and far right-wingers and left-wingers and, and uh, one Islamist party effectively doing, I'd say, worse things than their predecessors. You can make a very strong case for the government of change as far worse than its predecessor. And in a way, ushered in what we're seeing today, you know, like Benny Gantz, the leader of the Blue and White Party, one of the parties uh, that was part of the government of change, and the defense minister in that government, outlawing six Palestinian human rights groups, welding their doors shut, they can't come into their offices, declaring them terrorist organizations. Uh, and, you know, he is paraded around uh, liberal circles as someone that is, you know, we, we should all be clapping for because he's not Netanyahu, because he's kind of taking us back to the past. Ido and I have spent a lot of time actually talking about like what was the glue that kept together this like the coalition of change like what how did it how did it work and like there are there's no one there's no one plank that that sealed it together one way you could look at it is that among the related fissures in the Israeli Jewish politics is who should lead in the process of colonization is it the should it be the state or should it be the settler movement? And the settler movement, even in its labor Zionist iteration, always had an ambivalent relationship to the rule of law, because sometimes you need to break the law in order to realize your settler goals. And that under Netanyahu, whether it was because of religious prerogatives or messianic settler prerogatives, the state had become, wasn't the first and foremost value uh, anymore. The defense of Jewish tradition was, or other things. And that that what coagulated the anti-Netanyahu coalition was that it wanted to kind of re reaffirm the state as the central the central value of the political system. Another way to look at it, I mean, Ram, I think, is an exception in some sense because it's a client. It's basically a clientelistic party. Like the way that Mansour Abbas talks about participating in this government was that they promised sums of money to help develop Palestinian towns and villages in Israel. And he wanted that money. And and there's a little bit of good governance talk, but it, but he's not, it, it, it's a different kind of politics. Another way to think about it is that the, the other parties, the Jewish Israeli parties, their sociological bases actually are not that distinct, even though they, they I mean, there are in some senses, but they're not that that distinct from each other. And they're basically the people who have done relatively well under Israeli neoliberalism and capitalist globalization. One of the things that's like very striking is that many of the ministers in the outgoing government have advanced degrees from American or European institutions, which is a real sign of a membership to the Israeli elite. And many of the ministers in the current government barely have degrees. So that's another way to think about like the division here. It seems sort of obvious in retrospect and likely i would presume at the time that this coalition would inevitably fall apart but how and why did it fall apart in the way that it did when it did yeah i think first of all it's important to say that from the moment that it was sworn in this coalition people gave it very little time expected it to last very little and the opposition led by netanyahu for the first time in years was the leader of the opposition they didn't make life easy for Bennett, who is at the helm of the government. And I think things came to a head around June 2022, when it was time for Israel to uh, repass so-called uh, set of emergency regulations that continues military law 
over the occupied territory. Some people refer to it as the apartheid regulation. It comes up for a vote every five years. It always passes without any problem with little fanfare because it's, you know, for, for pretty much everyone on the Zionist spectrum, the idea that they would upend the status quo of military dictatorship in, in the West Bank was unheard of, even for, you know, I think the, the, the Liberal Party. So what ended up happening was that the Likud Party voted against extending these apartheid regulations. The Likud Party that has always been in favor of apartheid and under Netanyahu governed the, the occupied territories through the army, friend to the settler movement from the very beginning, because it was seen as a vote against the government of change and in, in favor of Netanyahu uh, and against the government of change that they viewed, that the opposition viewed as interlopers and that they had no right to be there and that Naftali Bennett broke all of his election promises in order to form this government. He broke promises to his voters and to the Israeli right writ large that they had no right to actually be there. And so the opposition voted against these regulations. In fact, the crazy irony is that Meretz, the liberal party that was part of the coalition, which calls itself an anti-occupation party and ran an anti-occupation campaign in 2021 for those the elections that would eventually bring about the government of change, they voted to extend the apartheid regulations in order to maintain this governing coalition. Uh, and it, it became very clear that once the, one of the Palestinian members of Meretz, they, they have a few Palestinian members, and one of the Palestinian MKs of Meretz said that she would not vote to extend the regulations and that they would not be able to actually have the votes because the entire opposition voted against extending them. Naftali Bennett realized that's the end of my mandate. And, and very soon thereafter announced that once these regulations didn't pass, that he would have to bring down the government and, and go to elections. It isn't a coincidence that the government fell over renewing the emergency, what they call the emergency regulations, the apartheid law. The, the maintenance of a permanent state of exception in the occupied West Bank, in the blockade of Gaza, basically throws into the Israeli political system this ingredient of instability, especially as it becomes impossible for the anti-Netanyahu or the center camp to form a coalition without support from the Palestinian parties. And so the choice that's kind of been presented before the Zionist center and center left is, are you willing to support real equality for all people between the river and the sea? Or do you want to keep maintaining this permanent state of exception, which will mean basically guaranteeing the rights rule into perpetuity? I think part of what's happening with the current protests is an attempt to kind of get around this, to repolarize politics in such a way that will then become possible to do coalitional politics without having to touch the, the occupation or the conflict as 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 Israelis refer to it and therefore restabilize the, the the political terrain but but I'm not sure that's actually going to be possible I mean part of part of the other back like sociological background to this is that secular self-identified liberal Israelis are realizing that they represent a small plurality of Jewish Israelis in the past that was not the case it was possible for the parties of labor zionism basically to win outright majorities in elections they they had coalitional politics and and because the orthodox parties were more uh, agnostic clientelistic they didn't have a problem joining coalitions led by secular zionists but today the demographic balance has shifted and i think part of the radical i don't mean radical in a good way but part of the like 
the willingness to take to the streets and confront police on the part of the protesters has to do with a sense among secular Israelis that this might be the last chance to prevent the solidification of, of basically like a kind of religious hegemony from being permanent for the foreseeable future because they can't contemplate a genuine coalitional politics with Palestinians and an end to the occupation. Josh, you write, quote, Ever since Rahm provided the crucial votes to keep Netanyahu out of office, Israel's Palestinian Arab citizens, who make up roughly 20% of the population, have become central to the country's electoral balance of power. This is perhaps the biggest shift in Israeli politics in the post-Oslo Accords era, and it has raised in an unprecedented way the question of the inclusion of Palestinian Arab citizens in the Israeli polity, of whether the votes of his Palestinian citizens matter as much as those cast by Jews. You wrote this around the time of the coalition government, I think. Where did this fit into the longer history of Palestinian party involvement in in Israeli politics? And I guess also relatedly to what exists of a non-Zionist Jewish left. And why did that moment of historic, if rather minor and conditional and precarious inclusion, why did it prove so limited? Why did the anti-Netanyahu forces find it impossible to reach out more broadly to Palestinian political parties beyond Rom to to the so-called joint list coalition of non-Zionist Palestinian parties. Yeah, I mean to give the historical roots of this are 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 that until 1966, basically there was not genuine Palestinian representation in Israeli Knesset. The, the Israeli Communist Party has always had Palestinian members, but for the most part, Palestinian politics didn't exist in a real way because the the dominant labor Zionist parties had what they called satellite parties that basically represented the Palestinians living under military rule. As that began to end, real Palestinian politics began to emerge. But for basically most of Israel's history, the Zionist parties did not look to those to the Palestinian-led parties as legitimate partners at all. In fact, they were just not counted in the electoral math generally speaking. That began to change most radically in the 1990s when Yitzhak Rabin began to negotiate the Oslo Accords and two Palestinian-led parties, Hadash, which is the coalition that contains the Israeli Communist Party, and another party called Mada, supported the Rabin government from the outside the coalition. Rabin had had a minority government because actually Shas had been part of his coalition and left. And in order to prevent the government that Rabin led from falling, those two parties backed him. And, and that was because the Oslo negotiations created an opening for Palestinian parties to say, look, we're not Zionist. We don't subscribe to the full ideological basket that the Zionist political system requires in order to be full participants, but the possibility of territorial compromise and with it a normalization of the status of Palestinian citizens within Israel because the conflict would be ended. And in theory, the in theory, the sort of process of expropriation and colonization would be arrested, created an opening for participation. Since between 1992 and the crisis of that began in 2019, there were there was no Palestinian support of co- of coalition and and the pendulum pendulum swung back in the other way because the right understood much much sooner than the Zionist left and center understood that support from Palestinian parties was the only way really that in the long term that secular Zionist parties of the of the center and center left would be able to 
would be able to challenge the right. The reason why it is so fleeting is that even center and center left Zionist parties don't consider Palestinian citizens to be genuinely part of the polity. I mean, this is where the concept of ethnocracy or that that Israel is a state that has an ethnos, but it has no demos. Like the de facto definition of who participates in politics are the Jewish people. And to the extent that they are non-Jews within the Israeli political system, they're often viewed as a kind of inconvenient reminders of a colonization process that hasn't been finished. And this puts hard limits on the ability of the Palestinian-led parties to join governments or or support coalitions because they can't betray their people. What was unprecedented in 2019 was that Ayman Ode, who is the leader of Hadash, which is the joint Arab-Jewish Socialist Party, of which the Communist Party is its major ingredient, agreed for the first time to endorse Benny Gantz as a prime ministerial candidate. They said they wouldn't sit in the government, but they would support it from outside if necessary. The problem then was that there were members of Gantz's party who were, had been formerly Kudniks on the kind of like not populist side, but still territorial maximalist who refused to be in a coalition that was supported from the outside by Palestinian-led parties because they're not considered part of the polity. And it would be an illegitimate government. It would not be a Jewish Zionist government. And, and that was the language that the Israeli political system used. And so Netanyahu, then they, there was this deadlock that went to the went to five elections in the span of basically three years, in, in large part because the anti-Netanyahu bloc could not understand that it had no path to defeating Netanyahu if it didn't include these parties. It's not clear to me that they understood that even now. I mean, the reason why Netanyahu, it's not the only reason why Netanyahu won, but part of why Netanyahu was able to come back to power in the November 2022 elections was that Yair Lapid, who was at the time the leader of the anti-Netanyahu camp, said he wouldn't sit with the Arab-led parties. And he ruled out any possibility of creating a broad enough coalition to defeat Netanyahu. It also happened to be that Netanyahu, and in part because the religious Zionists performed, overperformed in some ways expectations, ended up being the third largest party in the Knesset, that Netanyahu had more than enough seats to form a majority. But it's this, it's this fundamental refusal, not just to recognize Palestinians as members of the polity, but to understand that in order for Palestinian citizens of Israel to join a coalition, addressing the occupation has to be on the table. And as long as addressing the occupation in a real way is off the table, then there can't be a broad-based coalitional politics between Arab, Arabs and Jews. You, at, at best, you'll have clientelism of the kind that you saw with Ram, where the leader of Ram, Mansour Abbas, basically agreed to accept Israel as a state that doesn't provide equal citizenship in exchange for what he could gain from the Zionists, basically. Avigdor Lieberman, who we spoke about earlier, the the, the liberal hawk, nationalist hawk, he wanted basically to kick the Palestinian parties out of Knesset. Now, today, when the far right wants to kick Palestinian parties out of Knesset, it can pass a bill that stipulates certain ways to make sure that Palestinian MKs no longer can run. But back then, in a different era, he just said, let's raise the election threshold. And Palestinian parties had to actually band together and and run as one alliance, as, as one slate. And they did this in 2015 after Lieberman managed to pass a law to raise the election threshold. And they won, I think, 15 seats? Or yeah, 15. And they 15. won 15 seats. 15 seats. And so in, in, in a way, Lieberman, as a representative of, of, of the right, sowed the seeds for 
this growth of uh, Palestinian unity among Palestinian citizens between factions that you know, on any other day wouldn't really sit next to each other. They have a lot of disagreements, ideological disagreements. And so this Palestinian unity, which was almost a mistake by the right, ushered in a new kind of era of, of Palestinian politics in Israel and also a backlash and also a backlash. And I think the far right, the Israeli far right recognized this recognize this maybe a little too late, but they recognize this in the years after the formation of the joint list. And it's kind of reaching the peak of its powers, I think in 2000, 2020 with, with 16 seats in the Knesset, realized that it needs to start clamping down very, very strongly on Palestinian parties. Next comes May 2021 and the violence between Palestinians and Israeli Jews, kind of vigilante violence on the streets where everyone is terrified to walk the streets regardless of if you're Palestinian or Israeli, though, obviously, if you're Palestinian and you're, and, and you're walking the streets, you're, you're not only looking out for, for lynch mobs, you're also uh, looking out for, uh, for the police and the military. The right and Ben Gvir, especially, you know, with his, with his slogan of, we are the landlords, we are the lords of the land, they step in and they say, we're going to take care of you. We see this rising Palestinian power, this united Palestinian power, we are going to be the antidote to that. We, we hear all the time that, that Israeli democracy is at risk. How should people on the left, whose primary concern is solidarity with the Palestinian struggle, think about that? What should we make, as, as Hadash leader Ayman Oda told, told you, Josh, what should we make of, quote, a defense of democratic structures at the expense of the essence of democracy? At this very moment of, of so-called domestic crisis in Israel, we have the stirrings of what, what may, according to, to some, be a, be a new intifada breaking out in the West Bank. Are there any possible openings for this for this uprising to change in some more fundamental way by Palestinians entering this so-called domestic conflict and thus changing its terms or or do the very terms of the debate as a conflict among the dominant Zionist class of the apartheid state? Does that inherently just preclude Palestinians from any meaningful involvement and thus any sort of deep qualitative change in in the nature of the conflict? I mean, I think that what we're seeing out on the streets right now in this protest movement is part of a struggle over the future of Zionism, right? And the, the face of, of Zionism as it goes into the future in the face of Zionist uh, settler colonialism and apartheid, of course. And the fact that the symbol of these anti-government protests is the Israeli flag, I think, I won't speak for, I want Dane to speak for Palestinians. And uh, so, so, but I think that it, it would be, it, it's extremely difficult for them to see this flag being flown by the hundreds of thousands at every protest and the rhetoric, which is extremely militaristic for the most part with, you know, a few pockets of kind of more radical talk of equality, some even smaller pockets of people talking about equality uh, between the river and the sea. But for the most part, you hear the speeches on the stages especially in Tel Aviv, you know, this kind of liberal, this so-called liberal bastion in Israel, where actually the speakers are much more militaristic. They come from the, the military apparatus and the, and the high-tech sector. These folks represent, I think, in the eyes of, of Palestinians, a past that they don't necessarily want to go, to go back to. And so I think, is there a chance that something will shift and more Palestinians will join? Maybe like I don't want to be too overly deterministic about it. I don't know what's going to happen, and it'll depend. It'll really depend on what the far right does, you know, because they're also the ones in power. So they're you're holding on the levers of power. People are going to be reacting to that. And Palestinians may find some kind of opportunity to, to join it, uh, to join these protests. I don't see that happening, especially as you know, as 
they're not part of this conversation about the future of of Zionism. Yeah, I mean, I think the figurehead spokespeople faces in a lot of ways of the current protests are war criminals. They are people who have managed the apparatus of the occupation, have carried out its its dirty work, whether they're pilots who, who during Israel's wars dropped bombs on, on Gaza or people who worked in the intelligence apparatus that tortures and abducts children in in their in their beds in the occupied West Bank like that th- those are the 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 people who have gotten up on stages and said we have to defend democracy I mean I was talking to a friend about this and it's like these people are almost they have the the relationship that they have between their rhetoric and their practice is like meat eating vegetarians <laughs> um, and and that being said I'm an Ode still gets out there and shows up occasionally, not all the time to all these protests, but you know, he, he, when I spoke to him last summer, this was obviously before all of this had happened, but I mean, he is in a very unenviable position. When he told me the line about the defense of the mechanisms or institutions of democracy at the expense of its essence, uh, he was referring to the court and he was referring to a court that in the view of the right, is an obstacle to its agenda. But for Palestinians, has basically green-lighted, has consistently green-lighted oppression, whether it's ruling that the settlements were not judiciable so they could continue, or all kinds of violations of Palestinian human rights in the name of security or, or the defense of the state. But at the same time, Ayman acknowledges openly in his remarks that were there no Supreme Court, if there wasn't an address for Palestinians to occasionally attempt to and win relief from oppressive measures their situ the situation would be would be worse i mean i this is a conversation that that i, I know a lot of anti-occupation activists and people on the ground are having kind of in almost a circuitous way like what's better is it better for there to be a mask off situation where there's re- where the settler right demolishes the last vestige last remaining pretense of procedural democracy and so there it the apartheid regime doesn't have recourse to this kind of like fig leaf, or would that also have material and like biopolitical impacts that would be disastrous for people? And even though we have to oppose the system in its entirety, were the court to be stripped of the power of its power in the way that the right wants to do, it would mean that there is no address for any kind of recourse for Palestinian citizens absent like forms of political resistance. And because that isn't really as live as it was in the past, although May 2021 also did see a kind of renewal of of forms of identification with the Palestinian movement within 1948, it's not like there are other options, really, if there's a home demolition or if there's forms of illegal detention. I mean, these are often upheld by the court, but but the fact that they are occasionally blocked by the court means in some sense that it that it does provide relief. It's hard to know whether or not this kind of burgeoning intifada, this third intifada that's happening in, in the West Bank right now, what kind of an effect it would have if it grows and continues and, and becomes, you know, maybe as large scale or close to as large scale as the, the first intifada or the second intifada, though the conditions on the ground today are, are, are far different than than back in those days. So it's a little bit hard to to say what will happen, whether, you know, 
you have mass attacks against Israeli citizens and Israeli civilians, whether people will kind of snap back into the old Zionist consensus. It's, 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 it's hard to say. I, I, I think that no. I think that the answer to that is no. It doesn't mean that I don't know what kind of formation this kind of opposition camp will take when faced with kind of this judicial onslaught, this onslaught by the far right and potential uh, violent attacks by, by Palestinians. I think to answer your question about the left and opportunities and look, I, I spent some time in these protests. I went out to Ayalon Highway the night that Benjamin Netanyahu announced that he would be firing defense minister Yoav Gallant because Gallant effectively said that he would not support these judicial reforms since it was tearing apart the army. One thing that's important to, to understand is that the reserves, and especially in the elite unit of the IDF, the Israeli army reserves, there's something of a mutiny where people are saying they are not going to show up to reserves if this judicial coup passes. And Gallant, he's a, he's a military man and a war criminal, as Josh said. You know, he was responsible for uh, Operation Cast Lead in 2008-2009, which was a uh, uh, a war that Israel waged on Gaza to kill over 1,400 Palestinians. He does not want a mutiny. No one wants a mutiny. No one wants to be the defense minister that has to deal with that mutiny. And he stood up to Netanyahu. Um, Netanyahu said he would fire him. He actually <laughs> has not fired him. He's kind of keeping him around for now. As there's a tense security situation, he's basically finding a way to, to prolong Gallant's stint. But when he did announce this, Hundreds of thousands of people around the country sp spontaneously took to the streets. They blocked Ayalon Highway. They set bonfires. Ayalon Highway is the, the central highway that kind of uh, bisects uh, Tel Aviv and stayed there until the early hours of the morning until police pretty brutally kicked them out. And, you know, I'm, I'm there and I, I, you feel the energy. The energy is you, you can't be 100% cynical when you're, when you're seeing this kind of political politicization of, of people that for, you know, the Ashkenazi middle upper class for a long time has just kind of played ball and set and let the, the, the right take, take the reins. And all of a sudden you see people, I'll say becoming radicalized by police brutality, becoming radicalized by pogroms, settler pogroms against Palestinians in the West bank. Now, radicalization in and of itself is not necessarily a recipe for any change. You really need mobilization. You need new ideas. You need a third way. You need the Israeli radical left to come and say, okay, there is this crucial moment that's happening right now. We can stand on the sidelines and say, we're not, we're not participating. Or we can say, okay, let's take this to a place where we can educate people. We can further radicalize people. We can bring up ideas like decolonization, like a state for all of its citizens, like one state, full equality, talking about equality between the river and the sea. Uh, things that Palestinians have, you know, they were, they have been the, the, the front runners of these ideas that now only, you know, the now people who are out in the streets are, are starting to, to, to wrap their minds around. So without those vehicles, without those ideas and visions for change, I think this radicalization, even if you face the worst police brutality, that radicalization and politicization won't necessarily go anywhere. I think one of the, the very few things that are inspiring to me about this moment is uh, the growth of kind of radical blocks at these protests. In Tel Aviv, there's usually about a thousand Israeli Jews every Saturday night holding Palestinian flags, signs against apartheid, signs against occupation, signs against colonialism. And talking also about justice, not only for Palestinians, but for other groups that have that are disaffected by the Israeli regime. Obviously, Palestinians are, are subjects of, of a settler colonial regime, and 
you know, Jewish minorities, Mizrahim, Russians, Ethiopians are subject to a different kind of, of regime. But there is this kind of confluence of left-wing ideas that's happening at this radical bloc. And it, and it almost is like, uh, as people are marching these, with Israeli flags, you see they have to kind of march through this radical bloc. They can't avoid it. And in the beginning, it was many attacks on people holding Palestinian flags. And by today, it's become much more normalized. You'll still have some people coming and trying to start something. But for the most part, the radical bloc has become a part of the, of the Tel Aviv demonstration. And so I, I don't know if I have hope. I don't think I have hope for these protests. I don't get up in the morning. I think this, these are the protests that are going to change this, this country and change the regime in many ways. As Josh said, they're you know, militarist and right wing uh, and led by war criminals. But it's up to the folks in the radical bloc and us on the radical left to keep bringing those ideas, not only holding the line as solidarity activists with Palestinians, but to keep talking about ideas that have been, you know, hitherto very, very radical for the, for the majority of Israeli mainstream society. I think that's, that's our role right now. Watching this conflict from from the United States, it's interesting and instructive that the anti-Netanyahu politics have are so often framed in terms of the threat it poses to Israeli security, which is obviously very salient in Israel, it seems, and also in terms of the threat that it poses to U.S. public support for Israel. And and on that question, where where is the American Israel lobby on this? How are they reacting to both both the Netanyahu government and the opposition protests? And then. What role does this broader context of the growing American disaffection with Israel, including young American Jews growing estrangement from Zionism, what role does does that play? The reaction of the establishment of the American Jewish organizations has been unprepared and incoherent, basically. They don't have a strategy or how to relate to these protests beyond PR management and and to, to, to burnish Israel's image, however it might be possible. So when it seemed like the protests were fringe or unjustified, it was silent and it called for for unity. I mean, that persisted for a very, until Netanyahu fired the defense minister, the, the establishment's take in their positions was basically kind of what you might call like the smarmy center position, like we call for unity. Israel is such an important part of American Jewish identity. We don't want to fight over it. And then because Israel's like image burnishers in America are very creative. As soon as the protests took that next step after Gallant was fired, then the protests immediately began to be, and there's a terrible, terrible irony to this. The protests began to help rehabilitate Israel's image. They now then became- Look how democrat, this is democracy in action. Exactly. Exactly. Look how vibrant the the, the center left, the alternative to Netanyahu is Israel is a, is a is a you how could you say Israel's not a democracy? Look at all these people in the streets. And what I meant by the terrible irony is that that a protest against the removal of the last vestiges of procedural democracy in Israel have actually become a way of image washing the very government that's doing that. I mean, in terms of how this relates to American Jewish disaffection with Israel, I think it has to be said that the American Jewish organizational infrastructure basically operates autonomously from American Jewish public opinion, partially because most American Jews don't consider Israel to be their primary political issue. And so they're not engaged with it. And and there's a little bit of like um, a uh, enthusiasm gap in American Jewish Zionist politics, where if you really, really care a lot about Israel, you're probably really right wing on Israel. And so you run and operate the pro-Israel organizations. 
the thing that's very surprising to me because and also encouraging is that when you look at polling among younger Jews, there's a there is a pretty sizable growing contingent of people who identify as Jewish who also are are staunchly critical of Israel and Zionism, willing to be open to things like calling Israel an apartheid state. I think, and this is my pessimistic assessment, that the because the organizational infrastructure has operated for so long without popular input or or participation it could it can continue for a very long time it's donor financed those donors are for the most part insulated from grassroots pressure and it oftentimes like young american jews especially young american jews don't even know the main organizations that are kind of doing the lobbying in their name so these are organizations like the conference of presidents of major jewish organizations who knows what that is or the jewish federations apac people mostly know but there is a whole penumbra of organizations that basically benefit through their lack of visibility in American Jewish life. At the same time, American Jewish politics isn't insulated from polarization within American politics. And because Israel has become a more polarized political issue in America, that is having ripple effects into American Jewish politics. So the more that Republicans embrace Netanyahu, and you've seen this from people like Nikki Haley and I think Marco Rubio and others, of of denouncing the protests or supporting the judicial reforms that Netanyahu is trying to carry out. And the people who in large part wrote the judicial overhaul bill and who have been majorly responsible for some of the most right-wing legislation recently that the Israeli government has passed are American Jewish donors who have funded a right-wing think tank infrastructure that includes things like the Tikva Fund and the Kohelet Forum that are very much integrated into the broader like right-wing dark money apparatus in America. So all of that is to say that as those elements of the Israeli politics become more visible, there is a backlash among American Jews who are overwhelmingly liberal, like roughly 70 to 75% of American Jews vote consistently for Democrats a roughly 20 to 25% vote consistently for Republicans. And so it's not the reality in Israel that's going to have an impact on American Jewish politics. It's going to be the way that American politics politicizes support around Israel that makes it untenable for American Jews to count themselves firmly within the liberal democratic camp, which they do, and still be pro-Israel. I mean, the sociological slice of people who identify as staunchly pro-Israel, but also liberal Democrats, we they are probably overrepresented in public life, but they're, that, that demographic's not reproducing itself generationally. It's a never-Trump Republican sort of type demographic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or like Present a, in, pub- in news publications, but not really like out in the wild. It's like Bloom. It's like Bloomberg supporters, yeah. basically. I mean, these are also. I mean, literally, literally. I mean, like Bloomberg wrote it. It's not a coincidence that Michael Bloomberg wrote an op-ed in the New York Times to warn the Netanyahu against the going forward with the judicial reforms because he represents this slice of people who are kind of like political moderates and but who don't want to see Israel politicized in the way that it's being politicized in America. With this emerging dynamic of partisan polarization over Israel with Netanyahu like essentially endorsing Trump's re-election and the Democratic base increasingly hostile to Israel, even as most Democratic politicians remain in lockstep as always, is there some point here where support for Israel as a bipartisan norm comes under a new level of stress that could hypothetically lead to a qualitative change in the relationship? Or is that, um, am I really just hunting for optimism where none will be found? 
I mean, I think it, I think it, 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 it's just going to take a long time. That shift will take a long time because there's still an electoral penalty for speaking out about the occupation and criticizing Israel. And that has to do with the dynamics of campaign finance and the way that the right just is much better at mobilizing in like down ballot races. And so a candidate who stakes out a position critical of Israel could risk not even having ads run against them that deal with their criticism of Israel. I mean, this is, you know, we, we saw this a little bit in, for instance, in the, the ouster of Andy Levin, who was a Jewish but liberal representative in Michigan that is not a leftist by any means. I mean, he's like a, a liberal Zionist, a J Street guy. J Street is a liberal pro-Israel lobby. But APAC had had enough of him. They'd had enough of his criticism. And they basically bankrolled a campaign to oust him that didn't focus actually on his line in Israel at all, but focused on other things. Um, and I, I've spoken with people who work in progressive politics who say things, who often are like, is it if I if I'm a DSA endorsed candidate or a working families endorsed candidate, why should I stick my neck out on Israel Palestine if that could lead to this race be getting flooded with kind of APAC and APAC aligned super PAC money? And as long as that is happening, it'll be very hard to run candidates outside of really safe blue districts. I mean, when you look at the people, it's not like when you look at the people who are critical of Israel who joined the letter asking Joe Biden to increase uh, U.S. supervision of how U.S. military aid to Israel is being used. On the congressional side, it's people like mainly the people of the squad and the expanded squad. And they, the squad only exists because the strategy of Justice Dems, of the Justice Democrats, was to push safe blue districts further to the left, kind of following the Tea Party model of expanding the parameters of debate. So it's like a slow, it's a slow process, but I don't see it flipping anytime soon, unfortunately. The insulation of the kind of what we call the American Jewish establishment from the people it claims to represent is so, is so thick <laughs> that, you know, like it's, it's just, it's, there's no way to hold these folks accountable. There's just absolutely no way to hold these folks accountable. And, and there have been really, really smart and, and impressive attempts by groups like If Not Now, who really who made it their project to challenge these establishment organizations through protest and, and, and picketing and things like that. And I, I don't want to say that they failed. I, I just think that like I think they we all misunderestimated how much power these folks have and how much they how little they care about whether or not they represent. The majority of American Jews, and I think I, I'm I'm as pessimistic as Josh about the short run. I am optimistic about the long run because I think it'll, so many of the dynamics on the ground in Palestine, Israel, are going to affect uh, what happens there. And I think that just in general, like what we're seeing happen now, I think for a lot of people, especially on the left and certainly Palestinians, they're kind of looking at it and they're saying. What is this? It's you know, it's the it's the Zionists fighting among themselves, and 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 that's fine. Like I I respect that, but this moment, I think we need to find what the pressure points of of the Israeli regime are, and how best to use those and exploit those in order to to move our project forward, a project for liberation and justice and equality forward. And I think that this kind of dynamic, this interplay, is going to affect. Maybe even in the medium term, I hope in the medium term, the way that American Jewish organizations and, and, and the establishment are going to react to these things. And maybe 
maybe bring about some kind of accountability, some mechanisms for young American Jews to to use and, and say, you guys are just so out of step with us and you're only serving to, to perpetuate this really, really awful reality of apartheid. Josh Leifer and Ido Conrad, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Ido Conrad is the editor-in-chief of 972 Magazine, an independent magazine run by a group of Palestinian and Israeli journalists. Joshua Leifer is a contributing editor at Jewish Currents and a Descent editorial board member. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, the profound hypocrisy and inherent barbarism of bourgeois civilization lies unveiled before our eyes, moving from its home, where it assumes respectable form, to the colonies where it goes naked. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. We are recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Frankos and Ben Maybe. Check out our weekly newsletter and vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio and find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please also rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling people that you know about the pod. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and going strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. 